This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Ebron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. I'm Keith Baker. And I'm Scott Walker. Scott! What's going so on? So awesome to have you back. Thank you. Yeah. It's been, did. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a minute. Far, uh, we thought you maybe uh, ascended uh, to... Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the draconic pantheon from the sovereign <laughs> state or something and left us mere mortals. <laughs> I, I just figured you went to Arganesson and we never see you again, but there you go. Well, it's, there's that too, right, yeah. It, it was yeah. close. I discovered the uh, the sheer lunacy of becoming an RPG designer. Mm. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I could have warned Excellent. you about that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a, we, we could probably have a whole other <laughs> podcast talking about that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in this episode, uh, we will be discussing the legendary dragons of Eberron and the power that they sort of wield. Um, and uh, there's, there's really a lot to dragons, I think, in Eberron. Uh, to get started, um, there were a, a series of, of Dragon Shard articles, um, the first of which is kind of sort of what this, this episode will be like, uh, but talking about the role of dragons. Um, there was another one that uh, was about the Sarens, who are um, basically uh, locals on on the Saren, uh, the uh, the island Saren, which is near the coast of Arganesson. Um, there's also a whole article regarding the Draconic Prophecy, and of course we have an entire book titled "Dragons of Eberron" available to us. So we'll have links to those in the show notes for you. Um, Keith, do you have any, any quick comments about any of those? I, th- I think you wrote most of those. Well, the funny thing is I was just looking at that list and saying, oh, I did write something on the role of dragons. And <laughs> I have actually read that one for, you know, six years or something like that. So hopefully it's, uh, it's useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, again, the Dragon Shard articles are all things I wrote seven years ago or so. Uh, and and notably, I suspect all three of those articles predate Dragons of Eberron. Yes. Uh, and so part of it is, you know, Eberron is certainly a setting that evolves. And, uh, and you know, that ties to everything we're going to say today. We're going to talk about their role in the setting as it's established and such. But again, always feel free to, to – Find your own path. You know, what we say is about uh, offering insight and inspiration. It's not something that should limit what you want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Always, always remember that Eberron is your Eberron. Exactly. So, um, so one of the things that we know about Eberron and and dragons in Eberron in particular is that um, Eberron is steeped in the lore and the myths of dragons, Um, starting from its whole uh, creation uh, story with the progenitors and of course throughout its history starting with the age of demons and so on and uh, they've been essentially the the really uh, epic uh, not just in level but epic in scope uh, movers and shakers of the world of Eberron and uh, that is that is absolutely the case and this is something that that people have asked me about recently is what do the common people know about them and one of the things that I think is relevant here is most people do know of them as legends. 
you know, people know the story of Eberron, Sybaris, and Kyber, you know, the three great dragons that fought and became the sky, the world, the underworld. Uh, they've heard stories of, oh, and then demons rose and, and the dragons bound them, you know. Mm-hmm. But it is that point that dragons are legend. And, you know, literally on the map, Arganesson is the place where you write, here there be dragons. <laughs> but it is not a nation it is also a place where if Scott goes there, he's just not going to come back and we'll never see him again. <laughs> uh, that it's not a place that we just have diplomatic relationships with or something like that. It is the mysterious spot on the map. And, and so it is the case that while everyone knows for a fact dragon exi- dragons exist and we'll talk about them and, you know, they have uh, appeared in history. You know, it's, it's a fact dragons are mm-hmm. there. At the same time, to the common person, dragons are things you know about from story and legend, not a thing that you just think of like, oh, a manticore, a medusa. You know, those are things that can mean any day. A dragon, that's right. a big deal. You don't really see dragons flying around in the sky like in some other settings. In this case, you might find some ancient ruin or artifact that has, you know, either either draconic writings or maybe even some skeletons or bones or something to that effect. But they are... They, these are like artifacts of the uh, the impact that dragons had on the world. And this ties to the fact that, you know, D&D, not D&D, Eberron was created in the third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. And one of the core principles in making it was to take the things that existed in D&D and build around them instead of having this world where they've just been dropped in. And when you look at dragons in third edition in particular, they are immensely powerful and intelligent creatures. Even a black dragon, which is not one of the brighter ones, once you get to the great worm level, it's got an intelligence of 20 and a wisdom of 21. And it's a 15th level spellcaster, which by Eberron standards is huge. Yeah. You know, right. the, the smarter dragons are, you know, up in the 23s, uh, you know, are casting ninth level spells. And so part of the point is to say that something with that level of intelligence and power shouldn't be a random thing sitting in a cave, just <laughs> fiddling, you know, tossing coins in the air. You know, Eberron took that premise of let's take these things and apply, you know, the same way that we say if arcane magic existed, you should build a society on it. We say if you have these creatures and if they are mortal, if they are things that have children, that have families, uh, they should have a civilization. If they wield ninth level magic, they should do something with it the same way that if we wield third level magic, we should do something with it. Um and so that's where we ended up with this idea that they are literally the oldest civilization and the most powerful civilization and that you have Arganesson uh, as the the nation of dragons. And what we've sort of done, you know, from that is then to say, though, that they're so old and so powerful that they basically ignore the lesser races. And that's where you can get down into the various reasons that they do interact with us or the idea that what you're really interacting with are sort of rogue dragons who are out on their own. So it's a way to say we have the logic of creatures with this much magic and intelligence and power should have a civilization. But we can still say that that guy who's off in the mysterious mountain 
he's got a reason for being there. It's not like he has nothing better to do. But there is, you know, he's still off doing his mysterious magical experiments or things like that. And you can poke in there and get into trouble with him. Right. The, uh, you know, and, that, and and we'll touch on this when we talk about rogue dragons, too, mm-hmm. um, in terms of that, that sort of trope or that, that concept, um, which I think is a, is, a, is a really good one to hang on to. Um, the... Um, but you're right. I mean, th- th- these aren't just like the XP fodder. Like you're not going to really see, um, you know, like a whole bunch of dragon slayers, like an army of dragon slayers walking around um, trying to hunt for dragons. You're not going to see dragon riders flying around in the sky. Now, that's not and, to say they can't exist, but they're just right, going right. to be really rare. And and this comes back and where you will see them is with elves, but we'll touch on that in a moment. But, right. but part of the point to me is to me, a dragon in Eberron you know, first off, you have the civilization of Arganesson, but humans know almost nothing about that. You know, they don't even know that it's there. They just know Arganesson is dragon country and you don't go there. Uh, but when you have a dragon, the point to me was drawing from Smaug uh, in The Hobbit, where Smaug is a big deal. People aren't just like, oh, yeah, he's a dragon. It's no, he laid waste to this entire sort of nation and... Uh, you know, he destroys cities and, you know, it's sort of, he is a legend. And that's sort of where we wanted to go. In, um, my Thorn of Brainland series, uh, I touch on a dragon called Sarmin Delarex. And this is sort of this example of we have big blank spots in history in Eberron. But basically, I said that Sarmin Delarex laid waste to Thrain and actually killed Prince Thrain, you know, son of Galifar. Uh, just as a way of saying, you know, and here's an example of a dragon who was this legendary sort of ravager, you know, if you will. But with that idea that that was a big deal, you know, that's not just a random dragon. It's, it's again, someone facing uh, a beast like that in battle would be a big deal. Well, you know, because, yeah, I mean, the dragons are hyper apex predators, right? Re- regardless and you get them in a world like eberron and like you said the 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 disparity of power levels are so much that you can explore that you are witnessing a living god essentially Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and i I think if people think of it that way i mean yeah you can hurt your you can hurt these deities but good luck with that and and that's a very good way of thinking of it of that in eberron's power level a great worm basically is a god and then when you get down to the lower level, they're kind of like angels. And again, that's the sort of, if they're around, they got a reason for being around. The angel doesn't just lounge on the street corner. <laughs> and really, that's an excellent way of putting it because that's the main role of dragons in the setting, uh, which is you can, you can use them as sort of the isolated rogue worm doing its thing. And we'll talk about that. But the main idea is that at the beginning, you're a hero, you're dealing with whatever, or you're whatever you are, you're a spy, you're, you know, whatever, uh, but you're dealing with the things people know about, and those are things like the Aurum, the Emerald Claw, you know, organized crime. As you go deeper, you may get into the Dalkir, the Dreaming Dark, these sort of bigger threats, but the idea is underneath all that, what you have is this Cold War that's been going on between the Lords of Dust, the ancient demons, and the dragons, and that has been going on since the beginning of time. 
And that it is this idea that both of these forces essentially are playing this elaborate game of chess that moves are measured out in centuries. And as a player hits a power level, you know, basically you become a point where you can be a player in this game instead of just a pawn. But that's about, it's that level where in another setting you might be wandering planes and dealing with gods and things like that. Here it's the, oh, you suddenly sort of get opened up to what's going on uh, with the Lords of Dust and the Chamber. You know, I, th- I think that's actually a really good segue into talking, you know, talking about how GMs can employ dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, because in there, we, 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 we wanted to mention uh, the Chamber in particular. Mm-hmm. And that, um, so, you know, we have the Dragons of Arganesson. And mm-hmm. the Chamber is actually a subset of dragons That's true. who wanted to pursue uh, sort of researching the Draconic Prophecy uh, on Corvair and other areas outside of Arganesson, um, if I recall correctly. And, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it was also a thing <laughs> where they needed permission, right? It was, it was sort of like the dragons of Arganesson were a little skeptical about the chamber and the role that they play, but they're, they're sort of given reluctant permission to do so, if I recall. That's that's more or less correct. And, you know, it's basically a matter of Arganesson. The whole idea is that it's fairly insular. It's they don't really they recognize that the rest of the world are all these sort of primitive little annoying creatures and they don't really bother with them unless it threatens them in some way. And that's what happened to Zendrick is the giants basically started messing around with stuff they couldn't control. And so the dragons just wiped them out. You know, and so this is part of the thing is people can say, oh, hey, the dragons fought the demons before. You know, they're basically good guys, right? So they'll help us if things get bad. And the point to say is, no, they won't help you. They will help (laughs) themselves. Right. And that can be a very different thing. What I like to point out with Zendrick is, yes, by stopping the giants, they did a good thing, but they didn't help the elves. They devastated Zendrik and, you know, every civilization there. And the elves had to flee. Right. And so when the dragons step in, you've lost, essentially, you know. So, yeah, they'll they'll keep the world safe. You know, when people say, would they stop the Dalkir? They might, but by the time it gets to that, you know, then uh, it's not a situation you want to be in. But the flip side of that is the Draconic Prophecy. And the whole idea of the Draconic Prophecy, it's a little confusing. uh, But the idea is the Draconic Prophecy is a matrix of essentially if-then statements. If this happens, this will happen. It is not a single linear, this is the shape of the future. Because in part, that's no fun for our games. If the prophecy is, if the future is already laid out, why are we playing So instead, what the prophecy is, is a huge web of if thing A happens, then thing B will happen. And so it's a map of where the future can go that allows you, if you manipulate things, to lock it down a particular path. But it is always changing. So this is where we have, there is a way in the prophecy to unleash one of these ancient demon overlords. There is a way to know, you know, to keep them bound. You know, there's sort of all these different paths. And that's where the demons and the dragons, you know, the demons are always looking for those paths. They're saying, what do we need to do to let Raktol cash out? Meanwhile, the chamber is basically 
likewise looking for those things and just essentially studying things like the dragon marks. Dragon marks are prophetically relevant. What does that mean? What are these roles? And so this comes back to that sort of very high level. The, the whole idea is for a demon to release its overlord, uh, to, you know, unleash Raktal Kesh, you know, the, the rage of war. It's not simply a break a seal or throw a ring into, uh, you know, a volcano. It's that a very specific, this person must do this thing with this sword. You know, as I think I gave an example once that was saying, uh, you know, the son of the Kraken must kill Queen Arala with the Blade of Sorrows, believing that he is saving the world. Mm-hmm. And the whole point is for that to happen, Arala has to be queen. We have to get this son of the Kraken, uh, who's, you know, a specific sort of connection of different bloodlines. They have to get the Blade of Sorrows. They have to be able to use the Blade of Sorrows successfully to assassinate Arala. And uh, they have to believe that they're doing the right thing in doing that. And so the point is, if it was something the Rakshasa could do themselves, they'd just do it. But this is how they get tied into players is they need to get players to do the things, you know, they need. And meanwhile, that's what the chamber is watching for. And the chamber is trying to figure these out and sort of counter move uh, against them. And so that's where I say, you know, that they're the end game villains is what you sort of want is, oh, you were fighting the Dreaming Dark or you were fighting the Emerald Claw. As it turns out, that was all working towards one of these late game plots and the Lords of Dust might even have helped you. They want you to get this mighty blade of sorrows because they need you to have it to do this thing down the road. Uh, And that was kind of a big divergence. So I hope I'll, I should, I should step back, but you know, that sort of is just explaining that big cold war scenario that I was talking about. No, I I think you're actually spot on with, with bringing up the Lords of Dust because just as the chamber can be used as a mechanism to incorporate the Draconic Prophecy, the Lords of Dust can as well. Um, the, in both cases, the player characters might not even be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Like They just might be completely oblivious to the fact that they're being manipulated by either side, if not both sides. And this is a critical factor that in Eberron, you know, this is something we should have just called out from the start. In Eberron, Draconic alignment is not bound to their color. Uh, dragons are sentient creatures like uh, like anything else. And that means, again, they have free will. Uh, they choose their alignment. So you can have a good red dragon, and Dolara is often pre- uh, depicted as a red dragon, and you can have an evil gold dragon. Uh, so, you know, set that aside for a start. Uh, and second, similarly, uh, all dragons have the potential to master shape changing. Uh, it's in Dragons of Eberron is a feat. You know, a lot of them, of course, are higher level, you know, magic users. And so what that means is the chamber, most of their agents, they're dragons out in the world. But you don't know they're dragons out in the world because they're operating uh, in disguise. And so you sort of have these two levels of, you know, when you have a dragon actually as a dragon, you know, it means it doesn't care. It's not trying to do this manipulation level. It's, you know, doing uh, its own research into the prophecy, its own whatever. 
Uh, but when you're dealing with the chamber, you might be dealing with a dragon and you just don't know it. Yeah, well, that's the, you know, for, for people who really want to dig into this, right, the best thing you can look at it to, to, to really to really use this and have this conspiracy, you know, I did the thing on uh, espionage and the chamber fits right into mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But like you said, Keith, if you, you never know if you're going to meet one of these chamber dragons. And think of this as the butterfly effect where you are the initial wing beats and that mm-hmm. elven hermit girl who you may toss a couple of coppers to on the street that's a dragon making its first pass at you because you caught mm-hmm. its attention maybe on an early adventure, but you're not seeing those wing beats that are traveling across the world. I mean, really, the prophecy allows you to meander mm-hmm. wherever you mm-hmm. want. And so the second advice right. I would give everyone, if you haven't seen the Dracula dossier as a gamer, <laughs> look at it, pick it up. It's about vampires, about super spies fighting vampires, ultimately Dracula. But the way they do it, that allows you to really mold and wrap your head around a conspiramid, right, at the top, all the way down. There's all these cutouts. There's, and if you use that mm-hmm. kind of espionage, mm-hmm. you're going to do a, an immense amount of uh, fun justice to the dragons and then really just wow your players. No, I agree completely. And Dracula Dossier is also, uh, you know, the work of Ken Height, who yep. is a brilliant designer. So, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so I, I completely agree with that. And it's the same thing again with the Lords of Dust is the idea that they're both playing this deep espionage game. Um, and, and I think that's excellent advice. Yeah. You know, the prophecies, like you said, it could be it, the prophecy. I think people need to grasp onto it. It could be something so minor. But you don't know mm-hmm. what you're doing. You know, like, oh, hey, we just delivered this keg of mead from the Goblin Cave. Okay, well, what you don't know, you know, is, and it rolls down. And so I, you, it really does give GMs right. an excuse to be like, oh, no, that was part of the prophecy. And like you were, you know, people were saying, well, the future's already written. Well, sort of, because we can always just say, nope, that was part of the prophecy. Nope, that was part of the prophecy, too. Well, and, <laughs> and, and certainly it's back to that point of, of that's the thing is the prophecy isn't a single path. Right. It's all these different pieces. And so in other words, you say, oh, yeah, getting that cask of ale did lock in this other little thing. It's because of that that Boronel had a heart attack. Right. But that's just setting up, you know, these other things. There's a different path that's tracking, you know, uh, again, part of the point also of calling out the the Lords of Dust, which is not the subject of this, is all their different overlords have entirely different prophetic paths leading to their release, which means the Lords of Dust can often be at cross purposes uh, because they need different things. And and so it is, it's not entirely this monolithic dragons versus demons because the chamber is not all dragons. And any, when you're dealing with the Lord's Dust, you're dealing with one branch, but there's other branches out there. It's, you know, you've got the GRU and the, uh, you know, KGB operating separately. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Keith, and uh, what, what you were saying too about um – you know, with the well earlier, you were saying about how the dragons came to Zendrick when the giants had unleashed really powerful, dangerous magic, destroyed it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but then on the other hand, you also have this 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 notion of the draconic prophecy as something to watch and manipulate, and so on. And so often, the the question might come up with regards to say the day of mourning. Yeah. Right. Well, why didn't the dragons interfere? Mm-hmm. Um, well, one, and 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 in a conversation you and I had over email. Mm-hmm. You even mentioned you don't want them to, because right. <laughs> if they do, they're going to wipe out everything. So, but on so the you, other hand, mm-hmm. it could also be just simply that there maybe there's something that they need to see and watch unfold 
as part of the prophecy. So, so the morning is a perfect example of ways dragons can be involved is on the one hand, you've got exactly that. Uh, you don't really want them to decide this is a problem they need to fix. Uh, on the other hand, they could be watching it because they're saying, we're not sure what this is and we want to see. And we think, you know, it's the same way with dragon marks. They're interested in people because they are trying to figure out dragon marks. And so it gives them a reason to watch people. Uh, you know, the two other sides of the thing are they needed the morning to happen. The morning is part of, you know, some and they could and this is the other side of it is they could have caused it. And this is the big thing, again, of dragons not being your friends. They oppose the lords of dust. And that generally means we agree with what they want to do. But if a dragon basically has to say to keep Raktol Kesh from being released, I need to wipe out Brayland, they'll just do it. Because again, right. if it was Arganesson, oh, that would be a difficult sacrifice. They'd have to think about that. But they're just basically stomping on an anthill to, to get what they want. And so that's the big point is unless the morning threatens them, you know, that's the thing is they didn't care about the giants oppressing the elves. It's the giants threatening to basically throw the planes off balance was a problem for them. But what happened to the elves was entirely incidental. And as noted, they ended up having to flee Zendrick anyway. Um, this also comes back to the thing of, again, looking to Arganesson and to the dragons Eberron operates on a level where basically third level magic is essentially the height of what we are comfortably able to harness and use. Yeah. Dragons are using ninth level magic. <laughs> and, and this is just this sort of point of when they, you know, when they decided to, uh, hit Zendrick, they laid curses on it that are still active today. You know, that we don't even understand the, the traveler's curse, the Durashkatal. Uh, and so it is that sort of point of they have, you know, they are just such an, a more, an immensely advanced society compared to human civilization. Um, now this flips back to ways that you can use them of this is the point of, uh, Varric, the, um, is a dragon who basically came and taught the gatekeeper druids the arts of druidic magic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a touch of basically Prometheus there. And part of the point is you can have dragons if a dragon decides it has some reason to work with people, which could be uh, that it serves a prophetic end, or it could be that this particular dragon feels sympathy or empathy for people. You know, the Varric just said, I, I don't want to sit and watch these, these poor things suffer. Uh, that they could come and say, I'm going to teach you a spell nobody has learned. I'm going to give you an artifact, uh, that, you know, is way beyond your tech level. You know, essentially it's, it's the, they generally operate under the prime directive, but you can always have that dragon who's just like, I want to help these poor pathetic things. And, uh, that is a vector for introducing, you know, new paths of magic, artifacts, things like that. Right. So here, here we're, we're getting into road dragons at this point, mm -hmm. which yes. is sort of like those who don't necessarily adhere to, uh, you know, whatever, I don't know, structures or beliefs that the dragons of Arkanesson mm -hmm. might hold to. Um, 
these are the ones that are looking at the world in a different through a different lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some cases, they're 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 exactly that. Those that maybe want to aid the lesser races. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen. I think there are examples in novels and such of those that are experimenting, for example, with forbidden magic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's you know the sort of uh, there's you know the isolated dragon hermit that just doesn't want to be bothered with anything, wants to do his own thing. Um, or you can even have that sort of tyrant that's, you know, maybe dominating some small tribe in, you know, the, the shadow marches or something to that effect. And I want to jump on that one for just a moment. You know, one of the points with both the demons and the dragons is this question of, well, if they're so powerful, why don't they rule the world? (laughs) And the critical point there is why would they want to? Like, why is leading a bunch of humans actually, uh, you know, of interest to a creature that sort of wields, you know, magic that can reshape reality. Um, One of the critical points there is for that dragon tyrant, there's two paths, or really three you can go with that. The first is dragons have this huge civilization on um, uh, Argonessen, but you can always have a dragon who just wasn't part of that. You know, was born away from it, was orphaned in some way. And, you know, just because most dragons have this sort of huge advanced stuff, you can have a dragon who just doesn't know any of that and is thus more of a traditional monster. Uh, As long as they're out of the way enough that you can explain, well, why hasn't the chamber, you know, picked them up, as it were. Um, At the same time, in Argonessen, they actually have a region called the Vast that is basically where younger dragons get to just sort of, you know, essentially, I can't remember uh, the the Amish equivalent, but, you know, basically they just get to sort of run wild and and learn how to use their powers and such. It's um, like preschool. A preschool, exactly. But, you know, basically we're going to give you a whole bunch of, of humanoids to play with. And essentially... Uh, the tyrant dominating the tribe is probably a younger dragon doing that same kind of thing. You know, so it comes back to the great worm may have, uh, you know, intelligence 23 and cast wish. But, you know, fine. This dragon's only a thousand years old. He's just having some fun. You know, he's basically, so to speak, a kid playing with uh, with his Warhammer army, except that that army happens to be an actual tribe of humans. Yeah. Um. And and so, you know, that's certainly a sort of thing of uh, just because you do have the massive X-Files conspiracy doesn't mean that, again, you can't have that dragon who he's just having fun. So that's that's interesting. Uh, you know, when you think of Argonus and for, well, for one, we, we there's. You know, there's certainly tales of people who have traveled to Argonessen and have returned. Either they've they've stopped at the Seren Island, mm-hmm. or they've made it to the coast, or maybe they just saw like a whole bunch of dragons flying over and were just like, "Nope, mm-hmm. beating it, we're out of here." Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely evidence that that, or you know, tales we should say of people who have come back from there. Um, in in your mind, Keith. Mm-hmm. Do you see Argonessen as a place that player characters could actually and feasibly adventure in? Um, like, you know, like, and I mean deep into right. Argonessen, not and, just near the coastline. And my answer is absolutely. 
But there's two factors there. You know, the point is people don't come back and uh, it is this sort of epic level region. Uh, but there's two factors there. The first is, and part of the point of that is, so once you get to epic level, this is an area, you know, if you can reach a degree of power that if the dragons don't see you as equals, they at least see you as interesting, you know, then that is a place where you have, you know, again, you can get involved in conflicts on a much higher level. Uh, on the other hand, you can certainly go there earlier too, if there's an explanation for why you're, you're, you know, why are you of interest? Why are you not just going to be eaten or dismissed or enslaved or what have you? And so this is where things like the prophecy can come in. If right. you are, for some reason, this pivotal figure in the prophecy, or you're a dragon marked heir who, for some reason, again, there's just something about your mark that that is is bizarre and interesting then you can certainly have this you're getting to go where no one has gone before you know i mean part of eberron is that sort of pulp adventure and being able to say you're the first person to go to the lost world and actually speak with its inhabitants that's a that's a pulp adventure right you're the special hero yep. who gets to do that thing right and players are supposed to be special heroes so yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that reminded me of something, but I plum forget what it was. Um, I do, you know, we we have brought up once you dig into Argonus and you get things like the Light of Sybaris, and you know, one of the key points is to most people, dragons are legends. A person, you know, folks to whom they are definitely not legends are the Elms of Arenal. Because essentially every couple of thousand years, the Light of Sybaris attacks Arenal. Right. Um, And so part of it is people were again saying if someone was trying to find information about dragons, where's the best source? And Arenal are the people who actually can give you that list of here are all the dragon types, here's their breath weapons, you know, we have – because they have fought them. Uh, and you have particularly a path, you know, the Dorlaeus Tarn, uh, who, who basically want to take the offensive, you know, who feel like, uh, we should be more aggressive and more, uh, you know, doing something about this. And so if you want a path for players getting, uh, you know, like who's their guide, you know, if we're going to sneak into, right. Uh, to, you know, Argonessen to do something, having a Drillaeus Tarn, uh, either as a player, you know, if you've got a Valinar elf, well, what path is there, you know, are they from? So it's a sort of epic level path for a Valinar to explore or just having, uh, you know, sort of a guide who's like, I've been there before because the Drillaeus Tarn certainly have, you know, people who know, okay, here's the weakness. Here's where, how you can sneak in. Uh, I realized that what I was thinking before was actually specifically the Thorn of Brainland series, uh, my second novel series, mm-hmm. uh, was originally supposed to go to five books. And part of the point is that the fifth book was actually going to involve Argonessen, uh, because part of it is over the arc of the, the book, her starting out as a spy and very much as we were talking about earlier, it's the idea of she's, she's a spy dealing with the dark lanterns and as she gets deeper she basically stumbles in 
to what's going on with the dragons and the demons uh, and ultimately ends up being a player in that. Um, but didn't actually get there, but that was certainly the end game of that plot was going to be going to, to Arganesson. Please tell me when DMs Guild opens up, you're going to write that and publish it. I, I, the thing to me is I don't know if DMs Guild includes fiction. I would love to. I mean, again, like I said, I had the heart. If it does, you bet. It might. Okay, cool. But look, we'll, 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 uh, we'll defer to the internet for that. (laughs) See what people know. So, uh, well, so you, you, um, this is good because you're not, now you're diving into um, sort of how players can use dragons and um, <laughs> the draconic prophecy, which is great because that's that's where we want to go next. Um, you know, we know that traditional fantasy has, and we talked about this a little bit before. You know, you have some archetypes such as the dragon rider mm-hmm. or a dragon slayer. Um, you know, the three point five book um, uh, Draconomicon mm-hmm. uh, had a lot of prestige classes associated with that as well. Um, it can be challenging, I think, to try to take those archetypes and bring them directly into Eberron, just dropping it in. I think it takes, in my opinion, a lot more legwork to fit it in. And it's also going to be something that's going to be rare, not a common thing. To me, that that comes back to coming back to rogue dragons again of that point of uh, you can certainly introduce someone more like Varric and again, potentially a younger you know, Varric, of, of if you're bringing in a great worm, then yeah, they're not going to be like, why don't you ride me around like a horse? Right. You know, on the other hand, if you're dealing with a dragon who's just a couple centuries old, who's fascinated by, by you, you pathetic little race, you know, things, maybe they will decide to be your buddy and you can have that kind of relationship. Well, right. Yeah. It's also probably a matter of language of dragons, right? There's two vastly mm-hmm. different verbs. I will ride you and I will carry you. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I was going to mention something to that effect. And but, but I think the other, the other thing is you're not going to have like a nation whose army are dragon riders. No. Right? That's not, that's not going to be a thing. Well, it is interesting because uh, I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, I'm blanking on the name. There's a whole series of books that essentially do the Napoleonic Wars if dragons existed. Oh. Uh, it's Master and Commander with Dragons, nice. basically. And part of the point there is for them, dragons aren't like a thing that you just have a dragon rider. Dragons are actually like ships. And you basically have people sort of strapped to the dragon who are like dropping bombs and things like that. That's amazing. Um, right. And, and I'm saying that, that to the degree that you, you, you might not have anything like that, but you know, to the degree that you would, that would be like the dragon being like, "Okay, you little things, here's your job." Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's the dragon's the you know the captain of the ship, but it's also the ship. I would I would say I would advise anyone like if you got someone who really wants to ride a dragon, um, go with a go with a wyvern. Right. Yeah. It's definitely. the same thing. You get the same effect. Yeah, you're not getting a breath weapon, but I mean, whatever. The, and we do have a nation that does use facts. those yep. as mounts. <laughs> the uh, the um, the book I was thinking about, by the way, is it's the Temeraire series. Oh. And I think it's called like His Majesty's Dragon or something nice. like that. Uh, but it's definitely worth checking out because it is that sort of looking at dragons in a more modern fantasy context where dragons as weapons of war. And there's at least some ideas that that would be, you know, worth thinking about. Um but I think, you know, you were right from the start, Scott, of, of that whole point of if you want to have 
that kind of relationship with a dragon and a wyvern just won't do. Uh, it needs to be something where the dragon is essentially getting something out of this and, you know, doing this because it's, it fits with its plans. Yeah. Not that he's right. just some random little dragon buddy who has nothing, you know, better to do right. than <laughs> be your horse. Right. So all that to say that it's doable. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible. Right. And, and a GM should not just be reluctant to, you know, to include that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, there could be some concerns about power curve and things like that. Like all of a sudden, you know, this player character has a dragon ally, you know, that can be, but, but there's ways to, to work with that, I think, and, from, a, from a role play perspective. And part of that is, you know, you can actually have, in my opinion, you know, some fun with that whole, this is a young dragon uh, who it's almost essentially like the rookie detective. You know, oh, all, their, all their comrades, you know, the higher ups in the chamber think that my theory is ridiculous. But I really think that you humans, you know, have a useful thing. Uh, one of my other uh, – a short story I wrote uh, called Principles of Fire. It was in a book called Dragon's Worlds of Fire that was mm-hmm. short stories about dragons in all the different settings. Uh, essentially has an inquisitive uh, who it turns out – someone they've been working with is a dragon and it's it's sort of essentially saying you got sherlock holmes and watson and what do you know sherlock holmes is a dragon uh and that that again you have that it's just the question of why is the dragon working with you know what is it they're getting out of this is it tied to the prophecy is it just because they're fascinated by you you know short-lived races you know you can always come up with a reason you just want to actually have a reason. Now, you know, coming back to things, like if you want characters that are inherently more connected to dragons, you know, the Sarens are certainly a possibility. And so the Saren Islands, you know, off of Arganesson are a culture that largely, essentially, the dragons maintain just as a buffer. You know, it's largely sort of their job to to keep people from from actually getting to Arganesson and interfering. Uh, but that also lets you play. I'm a character both, you know, from a sort of distant, unknown land. But, hey, I've got personal relationships with dragons. Uh, or similarly, I played in a fourth edition campaign uh, a dragonborn from Kabara. Uh, and part of that point was I had this whole... I started with essentially a sort of variant of the sovereign host faith, you know, based on the uh, idea of, again, the dragons as the first sovereigns uh, and ended up sort of evolving into uh, being a cleric of the draconic prophecy itself. Um, But it was that whole sort of, again, having this, it's not like I have a, you know, I'm personal buddies with dragons, but I still understand them in a way that you don't. Um, and that was interesting. But Keith, I want to. Well, and, I, and I think that's. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Scott. No, I'm sorry. But Keith, I want to play a half dragon sorcerer. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, again, this is this is part of the thing where it's always that challenge as a game master of that I'm going to try and find a way, right, to uh, to help people with their their stories. So if someone comes to me and you know says exactly that, uh, I'm going to want to talk to them and say, okay. <laughs> First off, you know, one of the things is that 
Half dragons are not innately things that must be wiped out. Some of the people say, oh, they wiped out the line of all. That, that's because they were half dragons. It's not because they were half dragons. It's because they were trying to create a dragon mark that was unlike any other dragon mark ever seen. And they were going too far. Uh, half dragons, most dragons are just like, that's really creepy, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and part of it would just be that question of how did this happen? What's your relationship? Uh, with your, your parents, do you want to be tied in to any of this? You know, basically, why do you want to be a half dragon? Yeah. What are you expecting to get out of that? And, and realize that dragons have this very different place. But yeah, I'd I probably- mean, if it's a thing where, mm-hmm. I was gonna say, if, if it's a thing where the player just simply wanted to be able to breathe fire and have scaly skin. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, that's why Dragonborn were right, created yeah. as a race. Exactly. In fourth yeah. edition, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no. that you know, I, I I think that touches on too when you're talking about the Saren characters. We have, we have these these people who revere dragons, not unlike what Scott was saying earlier that that they're like gods, mm-hmm. you know. And and so to the Sarens, that that's very much how they sort of see them. They worship them. They revere them. And um, and so for any player who is looking to um, to you know glom onto that sort of a theme, like I revere the dragons. I you know I I identify with them. Um, uh, my clan is associated with a particular color dragon or metallic dragon. Um, and you know, that's, that's a good avenue for that. Yeah. And that's not limited to the Sarens. I mean, the Sarens can have that. We, in particular, it's sort of the same way the elves have, have my undying, uh, ancestor. The Sarens can say, oh, we have a draconic patron. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a variant sect of the sovereign host, the church, of the worm ascendant that actually asserts. Yes that the sovereigns are ascended dragons and right. uh you know so that's a path humans can follow if they want and similarly that same theory has led people throughout history to say well i could become a sovereign you know the the most famous one of these is the founder of the library of Korenberg. the whole principle is what he was trying to do was to become orion is that his belief was if he amassed enough knowledge he could essentially uh, take over the position from what the the current holder, um, who was right. presumably a dragon by his beliefs, and so that. And you see, uh, yeah, go on. I was say you see glimpses of that in the uh, in the Eberron campaign setting under mm-hmm. each of the deities. You do see, you know, in certain beliefs, you know, this deity is this type of dragon, well, and so on. And it's something we've hinted at in a lot of different places is at the very least the idea that myths about the sovereigns may be inspired by deeds of dragons in the Age of Demons. And the question is, yeah, but does that mean they are the sovereigns or does it mean there are no sovereigns and what you're dealing with is a bunch of stories? Um, right. Who was the dragon that discovered the draconic prophecy? That would be Aurelanistrix. Right, who in turn people have associated with Orion. Uh, Orion, yep. right. Who, in fact, the giants call Orelon. So just saying. Um, and so that's the thing is it's back to it's up to you to say, are the sovereigns ascended dragons? Well, that depends. Do the sovereigns even exist in a sort of coherent form? Or are they something else entirely that it just happens that they inspired? You know, the other way to look at it is to say, oh, Orlanistrix was an avatar of Orion, you know, and just flip the, flip the thing around and you can do it either way. Uh, but basically, if you want to play 
Like one of the things that some people miss in Eberron is not having incarnate gods. And if you want to play with that, the simplest way to play it is to have dragons acting as gods. You know, basically to say that there is a dragon who is playing the role of Orion. Uh, and, and, you know, again, that can give you that intensely powerful magical being stepping in and acting sort of as the sovereign. Just turns out if you actually get into it, well, you can kill him because he's actually a dragon. You know. Right. So touching on half dragons slash dragonborn, um, you're, you, uh, so I, I'm going to be honest. I'm not as intimately familiar with fourth edition Eberron mm-hmm. as I am with three, five. And so with dragonborn, we know Kabara is sort of a place where, you know, where we place them or maybe even, you know, from so, Arganesson. Are they also present on Saren as yeah, well? So dragonborn, it, it admittedly was one of these things where fourth edition made dragonborn a, co- a, a solid player race. And it was a, there's got to be a place for everything in, in Eberron. <laughs> where would you put them? Yeah. You know? And so, so I have no objection to people say, I don't want to you know deal with that. They were put in because they were a core player race. So we wanted to find a place for them. And the answer to that was to say, they are a race that was bred by Arganesson and used by the light of Sybaris, uh, essentially as just humanoid troops. And that in the Age of Demons, a bunch of them were left in Kabara. Because uh, we also put them, I think, in the Ring of Storms in Zendrick. So, you know, basically a bunch of them were deployed to Kabara and just left there to to keep an eye on things. And so what I like about them is it does actually, if you get into the Dakani Empire, part of the idea is that essentially the uh, the Dragonborn did sort of build their own little empire and extend out from uh, Kabara and basically end up fighting the, the Dakani and getting pushed back. Um, and And part of that is it does give you a more interesting sort of uh, if you will, advanced, powerful foe for the Takani to fight that, you know, they weren't just the only sort of significant uh, civilization out there. Uh, but the basic idea is they pulled back, you know, they were supposed to be protecting, you know, sort of guarding against the overlord bound there. And essentially they got too interested in building an empire and forgot about it. And that caused all kinds of trouble uh, when the overlord was nearly freed. And so the survivors pulled back. They've stayed sort of in the depths of Kabara ever since, just following their old duties. Uh, and that the colonists just basically don't know the difference. They're just like, you've got lizard folk, you got kobolds, you've got these dragonborn, uh, you have the difference between the poison dusk and the cold sun. And it's essentially the way we've always said it is they just say they're scales. You know, right. there's these scaly right. people out there. We don't really understand any of them. Yeah, they seem – some of them are different, but we don't really care. You know, and so that's sort of the idea of the Dragonborn in 4th edition is saying, oh, they've always been there. They've just never had an impact because they're just sort of clinging to their part of Kabara and don't have an interest in the colonists or expanding. Actually, now you make me want to play, like, run an Eberron game where everyone plays Dragonborn. It's like a Dragonborn, Arganesson, forward-deployed special operations team just, yeah. just getting into it. 
And, and that would make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, I mean, what I'm saying is that's a perfectly, you know, that's sort of sure. the idea is that a dragon could come along and say, okay, guys, it's time for you to finally, you know, I'm finally <laughs> activating you after 2000 years of <laughs> ignoring you guys. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and, um, it's funny cause I remember the origin of Dragonborn in mm-hmm. three, five, yeah. which was in races yeah. of the dragon. Um, now Race of the Dragon was interesting. I, 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 they obviously had didn't really do a good job of trying to integrate it well into Eberron, and I don't know that Eberron would really work well with those concepts. Well, but one of the things mm-hmm. I did like about the Dragonborn is the idea that they were chosen by Bahamut, Bahamut right. or whatever. Yeah, and and they were they were shaped into they were regular right. races that were shaped into Dragonborn, and I thought that would be a really cool thing to recruit. New agents of the of of the uh, light of Cyprus. Sure, and and that's the thing is that certainly works, and it's just a you know that's a very different story, and and the whole thing with um, uh, the fourth edition Dragonborn is they're just a true breeding race. You know, they essentially are another race of lizard folk. They're lizard folk who breathe fire, right. and so that's where we presented them there. But to me, that idea of uh, Dragonborn presented in that way, you're just substituting Bahamut with, as you say, the line of Sybaris. And if you want to mm-hmm. grant them the power to do that kind of transformation, you know, as long as they have a purpose for doing it, sure, I, I have no issue with that. Yeah, yeah. And then it does get back- Now, spell scales, on the other hand, are completely weird. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even... I, I've, I recall that I've looked them up because... Uh, um, you know, they've come up before, but I didn't delve into Races of the Dragon that much, so I don't remember them. Yeah. They're basically a physical manifestation of the draconic bloodline that sorcerers <laughs> have. Um and so it's like they, they have scales and 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 this comes weird. back to the whole point that to me with bloodlines with sorcerers, I tend not to go the dragon route, actually. You know, I tend to just come up with other explanations for why is there magic in their bloodline? You know, whether it's tied to a dragon mark, whether it's tied to the morning, whether it's tied to manifest zones, you know. Um, and you can certainly do the dragon thing. And then all you have to say is somewhere down your, your line, because dragons certainly are creatures that have intense, innate magical power. But I'm just saying that to me, that's not the, the absolute go-to uh, for sorcerers. Right, right. I think there were even some alternate bloodlines in uh, Three Fives Unearthed. Yeah, I think there were. I think that's what it was in. Yeah. So there's always possibilities for that. Cool. Um, I think we've touched on everything that we need to touch on with dragons. I mean, I'm sure there's more we could explore. Um, but I think those are the key key things with regards to either trying to incorporate dragons or the draconic prophecy as a player or as a GM. Um, are there any last minute thoughts that either of you have? Scott, how about you? I no. Well, I think we've beaten the non XP dragon to death. <laughs> not, I mean, not really. We could, we could go yes. on for hours about this. Well, the, the thing I would just yeah. say is the thing to me is just to say that when you are using a dragon, it just should have a story. Yeah. That, you know, the one option is it's tied to the chamber. And then, as Scott was saying earlier, think about it as a spy game. You know, what's its what's its angle? Uh, is it sort of running an op or is it somebody's uh, agent? 
Uh, if you're not going with that, then just again, why is it here? What is it trying to accomplish? You know, this is a thing that expects to live for thousands of years. It's uh, intelligent. It has, you know, it's it's sort of tied to a, a more advanced culture. Why is it slumming around here? And whether that's as a monster or a patron, you know, it wouldn't be here unless it had a reason. And so you just want to think about that. You know, they're not just random uh, cash grabs. You know, I think there's, um, or I know there was a an article on D&D Beyond titled uh, How to Play a Red Dragon Like an Evil Genius. Mm-hmm. Now, while we're not talking about red dragons or evil geniuses per se, I think a lot of the advice that they give in there in terms of the complexity of strategy in how, how to handle them in an encounter, but also just in the sort of story <laughs> sense, I think still applies. So it might be and, worth and, a read, I think, for those who have And that's seen the it point yet. to Rogue Dragons and such, again, is, is, you know, the idea of saying, we said tyrant governing a tribe. There's nothing wrong again with saying there's a dragon who's taken over an organized crime syndicate uh, as a theory of he's literally just doing it because he's playing with toys. You know, this is a fun little game. Right. Sure. Uh, he's bored. But right. that's what I'm saying is you can still have your evil genius dragon doing an, an evil thing. There, what I'm saying is, you know, it could be that they're doing that. That comes back to the prophecy. That could be a chamber dragon because, again, they need this organization to do something. It's back to the same way an agent might have an undercover op, you know, for a purpose. Or it could be a dragon who, again, this is just literally a fun game to play with the lesser races. And so you can sort of go either way. This is part of a big plot or this is just he's my local bad guy. But again, I'm just saying think about the story. You know, he's going to have a reason he's doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, I think that uh, that wraps it up then. All right. Uh, Well, Thank you guys for listening and uh, be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, find links to our Google plus Twitter and Facebook pages and whatever option you prefer. Just let us know what you think of the show. Scott, it's great to have you back. Thanks for being able to join us and uh, hopefully Wayne will be able to join us uh, next time. And um, next time, uh, you know, we talked about the chamber and I'm thinking maybe Lords of Dust might be a good follow. Lords of Dust. All right. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, until next time, keep exploring.